You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. And thank you so much, Pastor Jerry. We so appreciate you leading us in prayer. And again, we just want to um, reiterate that if you have been impacted by these wildfires in any way, if there's any way we can help you, please um, please get a hold of us. And there are a number of means to do that. And uh, we will help in any way we can. And again, with what Pastor Jerry said, we are so looking forward to being able to gather together in in-person worship at 1045 starting next Sunday. And we will take the first 50 who RSVP for that and the first Sunday in October. And again, that goes live today for registration at noon on our app, on our website, or through that link that we sent out to you in the weekly email update. But now we're very deliberately gonna shift gears and dive into God's word together. And if you've been with us, we've been walking through this series in the Gospel of Matthew, and it brings us now to the Sermon on the Mount. And we actually really dove into the Sermon on the Mount last week with Matt's sermon. And if you did not have a chance to catch that message, I strongly encourage you to do so. It was a fantastic message, and these messages do build on one another as the Sermon on the Mount builds on itself. And as we Look at the reality of what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. What he's doing is really defining what the law was always intended to communicate when it was communicating what right relationship with God and right relationship with others was always supposed to look like. But Jesus now is really amplifying that with what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's in these incredible life-changing things he's saying really reiterating what the law was always meant to be. I mean, sometimes we can come to the Sermon on the Mount and it feels like, wow, this is, this is pretty radical. This is pretty extreme, but this is what God always intended. And so if we're talking about what right relationship with God looks like and right relationship with others looks like, it makes total sense with where the Sermon on the Mount is going. Last week, if you were with us, Matt took us through the reality of anger and forgiveness and what that should look like in our relationships with one another. And for those of you who know your Old Testaments, that's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where it says, do not murder. But that very next verse in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, is where we're going today. And it's going to speak to sexuality. In particular, it's going to speak to adultery. Now, with that being said, I feel like it's necessary for us to steer into a couple things since we're going to be talking so candidly about sexuality. Because in this day and age and in this broken world, there's really two extremes that we can tend to gravitate to that we need to speak to as we prepare to dive into this. And some of you are, are already thinking through and responding to that, that one extreme. You see, there's one extreme that comes to a passage like today, and it looks at this passage and there's just kind of an eye roll. Like, seriously? I mean, isn't sex just an appetite that we should indulge and, and follow through on? I mean, in our culture, basically when it comes to sexuality, as long as it's between two consenting people, we've long moved past two consenting adults, two consenting people, then it's okay. But what Jesus is going to say 
what he's gonna help remind us about and understand is that that view of sexuality is actually one-dimensional and it dilutes and devalues what sex was always intended to be. Sex was created by God to be more than just a physically bonding thing. It was meant to be a whole person experience. So when two people give themselves to one another sexually, they're not only doing something that's physical, they're doing something that's emotional, mental, and yes, even spiritual. And quite frankly, what scripture will teach from Old Testament to New Testament is that sex was always intended to be, always designed for a relationship, a covenant committed relationship between one man and one woman in a marriage covenant for life. And anything that falls outside of that is devaluing and diluting sex. Because in a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman, when you're giving yourself to one another sexually, that is supposed to be a reflection of what you're doing through your entire life every day, becoming one, giving yourself to one another, not just physically, but emotionally and relationally and spiritually. And so this idea that you can have sex with whoever you want really devalues and disrespects the power that sex actually has for us. And if you're pursuing sex outside of a marriage covenant, you're not actually giving, you're using. And scripture talks a lot about that. So sex was always designed for a lifelong covenant committed relationship between a man and a woman, his husband and wife. But there's another extreme that can, we can go to, and it's this extreme of, well, somehow sex is, isn't good. Maybe it's, it's dirty or um, even defiling. And I know that's an extreme, and maybe there aren't a lot of people who think like that, but, but that view is out there as well. And the problem with that view is it disrespects the goodness of sex. Who invented sex? God did. God is the one who created sex. In fact, in the book of beginnings, we go all the way back to Genesis. The first picture we have of humanity is God creates man and then he creates woman and there they're standing before one another as God brings woman to man. They're naked and unashamed and he literally breaks out in song and says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's poetry, it's song, it's excitement, it's desire, it's passion and it's all God created, God ordained. And God says, what about that? It's good. Sex is good. But God has always designed and intended sex to be a goodness that is experienced once again in a lifelong covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. You see, the problem with these two views is that one doesn't respect the power of sex and one doesn't respect the goodness of sex. And what Jesus is about to say captures both these realities. It is a celebration of the goodness of sex it is also a celebration of the power of sex with what he will say. And some of you might be thinking, do we, do we really need to go there? I mean, I know we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, but adultery, really, is that really something that has to be spoken to? And in my research and in preparation for this sermon, I found this, this um, survey, and I'm sure there are more recent ones. This one was from a 2014 TED Talk, but it was the most direct survey I could find that speaks specifically to what we're going to look at today. And this was a survey among those who were already married. 20 to 40 percent 
of men and 20 to 25% of women will end up having an affair at some point in their marriage. And in this poll, 75% said that if they thought they could get away with an affair, they actually would do it. That's, that's sobering. So do we need to go there? Yeah, of course we need to go there. And it's not just in regard to our sexuality and in regard to an affair. The realities, the principles that we're going to look at as we prepare to dive into God's word together are applicable for all of us, whether you're in a marriage relationship or not. Because this is God's word. It's practical. It's relevant. It's applicable for all of us. And so we're going to dive into this reality that passion and purity can coexist and should coexist together. So I'd like to once again invite God through the work of his spirit to speak to us through his word. Would you join me in praying? God, boy, this is a sensitive issue, but such a necessary one. And Lord, there are some who have walked this road of adultery. Maybe they're, they're in the middle of it right now. And Lord, I pray that this would not add to their pain, but would give them hope. God, thank you that you love us. And despite our brokenness, you still choose to love us. And the hope and the promise of life change that you offer us is real and tangible, and it's ours to have through right relationship with Jesus. So please, Spirit, would you work in our hearts and lives this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive into this amazing passage together. And this is what it says as Jesus continues on through this Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And he's referring to Exodus 20, verse 14. But I tell you, and here we go, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow, there is a lot packed into those few verses. So let's start with where it starts. You shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14, as we've noted, he's reaching back into the Old Testament. So when we talked last week, if you'll remember, as Matt dove into the reality of anger and, and murder and what Jesus has to say about that, he rightfully established with us that pretty much all of us would agree that murder, murdering someone, is wrong. So, I mean, really, especially in this day and age, is adultery wrong? And the vast majority of you say yes. This is from, ironically, a Mormon publication, Deseret News. This was a survey, you know, in 2017. But again, this was the most direct survey I could find to this question. But 76% of people in this poll, and it was built from a number of, of surveys, believe that adultery is wrong. And it is. The Bible calls it sin, calls it brokenness. And as a pastor through the years, I have spent time and sat with a number of people who have been walking through the pain of adultery or have just been steering into it. 
I've sat with husbands who have confessed to their wives that they have been cheating on them. And I've sat with wives who have heard their husband tell them that they have been cheating on them. Once again, it is not our intent or our desire to add to your pain with wherever you're at in this journey, but we have to speak to this because I can tell you from having sat with folks on both sides of this equation, there is a pain that comes from the betrayal of adultery that is a pain even of itself. There's no other pain like it. But my friends, if you hear anything this morning from this message, it's this, there is hope. And it is rooted in what this passage says. Because you see, this talks about the reality of needing to guard our hearts. And boy, do I need to hear this reminder and do we need to hear this reminder because I think it's very fair to say that we have never lived in a season or a time in human history where it is more difficult to guard your heart because we're so connected. The internet, social media has completely changed our lives and there's, there's no going back. We are more connected in more ways than we ever have been, which in so many ways is such a good thing and such an important thing. But with it comes all these temptations that actually come looking for us. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with a husband or wife who has found themselves in an affair, trying to pick up the pieces, wondering how in the world did I get here when the story actually goes that in many ways it came looking for them. An old boyfriend or girlfriend, an old friend, reaches out to them through some form of social media, a relationship begins to happen. There's already some struggles or difficulties in a marriage and every marriage will go through that season, multiple times it seems. And it's the ideal time for this temptation to take root in their heart and before they know it, they're now committing emotional adultery. They're having an emotional relationship with this person that they should only be having with their spouse. And then it follows the momentum of that and then becomes an actual physical adulterous relationship. And it happens time and time again. And we live in a culture that constantly tells us, oh, follow your heart. Wherever your heart tells you to go, you follow, which is great if your heart could be trusted. But the reality is your heart and mine, apart from right relationship with God through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, is not to be trusted. Our hearts are broken. They are sinful. They are selfish, apart from right relationship with God with God. And even when we have right relationship with God, through knowing Jesus Christ, we still have to be diligent about guarding our hearts because that brokenness is so pervasive that we will default back to it. So follow your heart. Yes, if it's spirit-led, led by God into right relationship with him and right relationship with others. But otherwise, no, don't follow your heart. Guard your heart. In the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, in Proverbs 4, verse 12, it says, above all else, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. Because my friends, here's the reality. Physical adultery is always preceded 
by emotional and spiritual adultery. Many years ago, I preached this same sermon. That's, that's one of the joys of getting to be your lead pastor for so many years is we actually cycle around eventually to, to sermons I've, I've preached before. And I never preach the same message, but it's always helpful to me to just go back and look at my notes. And literally a couple hundred sermons ago, I preached through this same passage with you. And there was someone who came and found me after hearing the very message that you're hearing this morning, at least in essence, and said, Jay, we need to talk. Now, I I love to talk with people. I love being your pastor. And I'm always wanting to connect with you and to talk with you. And so I I got this email that said, hey, can we talk? And I responded back. And by the way, if you ever ask to meet with me or any of the other pastors, we're going to legitimately ask you, what would you like to talk about? Can can you give me something? Because if there's something we need to prepare for or study or what have you, we want to help you in the best way possible. But many times what people will tell me, and it's completely understandable, well, it's a personal issue. That's fine. Then we'll just see where things are at when we actually meet together. And he said, it's a personal issue. So he came to me. And there's this long moment of silence as we began our time. And that's not uncommon either when I'm talking with folks. And finally the words tumbled out, I'm in an affair. And I, I don't know how I got here. And I don't know how to get out of it. And I don't know what to do. One of the other benefits of being one of your pastors for such a long time is I know most of you. I don't know all of you. I wish I did, but I know most of you. And I knew this guy. We were friends. I knew his wife. And out this came. And what we quickly realized together was we began to do the hard work of working through where he was at. I sat with him when he tell his wife, told his wife and saw the heartache and her broken heart as he did. But the reality was the physical adultery was long preceded by the emotional adultery and the spiritual adultery. My friends, also in the book of Proverbs, it says, as a man thinketh, I'm going King James on you here, as a man thinketh, so he is. The battle for your heart really is also a battle for your mind. And so that's why it's so imperative that we guard our hearts. So let's go there. Are you guarding your heart this morning? What are you looking at? Who are you talking to? How much are you truly sharing? And if you're married, Are you sharing and having a heart connection with someone that you shouldn't be, who's not your spouse? Boy, you're playing with fire if you are. Because our hearts are not to be trusted, they are to be guided into right relationship with one another. But living a life of passion and purity isn't just about guarding your heart, it's about guiding your passions. 
Once again, sexual desire in and of itself, it is a good thing. It is a God-created thing. The real issue is what do you do with it? Where is it expressed? Where do you go with it? Those are the real questions. And we'll come back to some tangibles with that in just a little while. But we need to guide our passions. And this is where this really becomes applicable for all of us, whether you're married or not. Let's look at this passage again together. That word for lustfully is a very significant word for us to understand. When you think about the word lust, which I know is not a word we really use in our culture, but when you think about that, what comes to mind? Well, honestly, for me, I think that involves sexual lust. That's just where my mind goes. If there's a lust, well, that, clearly that's sexual, but that's not always the case. It certainly is in this context. Jesus is talking about sexual lust, but what does that word really mean? And what that word really means is a desire that has become an over-desire. You see, my friends, this word is used throughout Scripture as well to describe idolatry. And what at the end of the day is idolatry? It is taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing. And you can fill in the blank with any good thing in your life. The great church father, John Calvin, said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. And in our sinfulness and brokenness, that is so very true. You take any good thing, and for any one of us, it can become an over-desire. It can become the ultimate thing. And what this tangibly, practically looks like in your life and mine is when our language begins to say, well, as long as I have that, I can be happy. If I could only have that, I would be fulfilled. That, my friends, is a litmus test for desires that have become over-desires, or to use biblical language, when we have taken someone and made an idol out of it. Yes, this context is talking about sexuality, but this is applicable to anything in your life and mine. So my friends, here's another question for you, and this applies to all of us, married or not. How are you guiding the passions the appetites, the desires of your life. Are you guiding your passions so that they reflect right relationship with God and right relationship with other people? Is there an idol this morning that you need to smash? For many of us, probably for most of us, this needs to be a daily practice of smashing the idols in our lives. Those things that we put too much hope in, too much weight on. But this isn't just about guarding our hearts and guiding our passions. Look what Jesus goes on to say. He says, take extreme measures to do so. Unfortunately, this passage can be misunderstood. Because people look at this and they think, oh, now that's ridiculous. I mean, who would cut off their hand or gouge out their eye? Well, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's exaggerating here to make a point. And the point is you do whatever it takes to guard your heart and to guide your passions. And obviously he's using extreme language here to do that. Really? 
gouge out your eye and cut off your hand if necessary? And again, exaggerating to make a point, but is it really that serious? And the answer is yes, it actually is. When it comes to sin of any kind, listen carefully here, it never stays the same. Sin never stays the same. It always grows if it is undealt with. And we see this reality reflected in many places in God's word. Here it is in the book of James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The point here being that we are to guard our hearts and that we are to take extreme measures in order to do so. So I promised you earlier that we would talk about some tangibles of what it means to to guard your heart and to guide your passions because I know we haven't talked very specifically about that because this has an endless number of applications, but I'll I'll give you some for various realities. Many of you know that Jamie and I are high school and college sweethearts. We began dating when we were 16. I dated her for six and a half years before we got married. And we did not have sex until we were married. So we were in a dating relationship for six and a half years. And there are some of you who might be thinking, well, that's because you were a pastor. No, I actually wasn't a pastor then. I was a young man who had this woman who I was hoping would someday become my wife who I loved and who I had great desire for. But Jamie and I took extreme measures to guard our hearts and to guide our passions. And this was the extreme measure, one of them that we took. We made a commitment to one another that if we ever crossed our physical lines, our sexual lines that we had set together, specifically if we had ever slept together before we got married, we would break up. And I was not going to lose her that way. We knew that we wanted to get married. And I loved her enough to wait for her and her for me when it came to our sexuality. That's a pretty extreme measure. Who does that? I just talked to a young adult who recently got married. They waited until they got married to have sex together. And they told me, do you know how many regrets we have for waiting until we got married to have sex? None. We have no regrets. We are so glad that we did that. Pretty extreme measure. But what about this? What about the guy who I talked with some years ago, after again, this very sermon, whose struggle was strip clubs? And there was one right along his path where he would drive every day to and from work. And what we figured out together was he didn't have to drive that way. So he literally made a detour through town on his daily commute to and from work and home so that he avoided all the strip clubs and avoided any chance that he would be tempted to just stop in, which he often did. It added quite a bit of time to his daily commute. But he chose to do that because he was taking extreme measures to guard his heart and to guide his passions. Or what about the husband and wife 
who unfortunately did go down that path of adultery. One of them had betrayed the other. And so in order to rebuild trust in the relationship, they both put a tracking app on their phones, and there's a million of those out there. But they literally chose to have that kind of accountability together in order to rebuild trust in their relationship. That's pretty extreme measures. Or what about the person who it was such a temptation for them to let their heart go places that it shouldn't that they chose to give up their smartphone and to get a dumb phone that actually just was a phone. And they chose to give up the internet as well. In fact, the only time they were on the internet was when their spouse was there in their home so that they had that kind of accountability. Who does that? Well, folks who are taking extreme measures to guard their hearts and guide their passions. And there's a million other applications of this. But I think you get the point. And this is Jesus's point, that we take drastic measures because of what is at stake. What's at stake with all this? Well, for starters, if you are married, you actually have entered into the highest type of human relational commitment, and it's called a covenant. Proverbs chapter 2 in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2 in the Old Testament, describe marriage as a covenant. It is the highest level of lifelong commitment you can make to someone, is to, is to marry them. That's what marriage was always intended to be. So for those of you who are married, little quiz for you. So in your wedding ceremony, when did you actually get married? Was it when someone gave someone away to get married? Was it when the pastor or whoever was performing the ceremony gave their message? Or was it at the cutting of the cake? Okay, obviously not that. But you know where this is going. It was during the vows. Two people marry one another when they give their vows to one another. That's where someone actually marries another person. Almost 29 years ago, when I stood before our church family and my family and community with Jamie up on a stage, not unlike this one, and said, Jamie, before God, our family and friends, I take you to be my wife. And then I said a bunch of things after that. And you know what's interesting? Is that in what I said and in what two people say in their vows, none of that is conditional. Or to put that another way, none of that is preceded by an if. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll do this. No, it's I will do this. See, marriage was never intended to be something that we put conditions on. When you make a lifelong commitment to someone, it's, it's a lifelong commitment. Now, my friends, I know divorce is a reality. We're going to be coming to that very soon, I believe next week. And again, my intention is not to add to your pain. That, that's not the point of this. But the point being that Jesus is using such strong language here because of what is at stake. And once again, this is where this becomes applicable to all of us. Is marriage the only covenant that we have in our lives? And the answer is no. There's actually another one. And this is where it's described. This is in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians. He has made us competent as ministers of a new 
covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. My friends, if you have entered into right relationship with God through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by receiving him into your life, whether you knew it or not, you entered into a covenant. Because God says, I will love you, not based on your resume, but based on mine. God's word also says in 2 Corinthians as well, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sees us in all our brokenness, in all our sinfulness, and he still chooses to love us and he commits himself to us. So is God's covenant commitment to us conditional? Well, yes and no. It's both. No, it's unconditional in that we don't earn God's love. God gives us his love. And again, it's based on our response to what he's done through us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Man, he he loves us despite our brokenness, in the face of our brokenness. We are accepted by God without conditions if we'll respond to his free offer of love and right relationship through receiving Jesus Christ in our lives. But... Once you have his love, there actually are conditions. Because if you want his approval, if you want his blessing, then he expects you to trust and obey him. And again, you don't trust and obey him to earn his love. You trust and obey him because you have his love. So if you say you love Jesus, then he expects you to trust and obey him because that is the path to blessing. And We need to own that and believe it. So, is it possible to be an adulterer, a betrayer, and to not be married? And the answer is yes. Look what God's word says. This is in James in the New Testament. And he's talking to people who are indulging and living out their sinfulness and brokenness and being quite proud of it. And he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And when it's talking about the world there, it's talking about the evil, broken world system out there that tries to get us to betray God, betray one another, and to live out our sinfulness and brokenness. My friends, I am an adulterer. In my worst moments, in my sinfulness, no, not in regards to my relationship, my marriage with Jamie. I have been faithful to her, but there are times I'm not faithful to my God because I default back to broken ways of thinking, broken ways of acting, broken ways of believing And it's an ongoing process of calling those things what they are. That's what confession is. When scripture tells us to confess our sins, our brokenness to one another and to God, it's to call it what it is and then to do business with it. And the Bible calls that repenting. It means literally turning away from that and choosing to turn towards God and to believe him for what he has because please do not miss the message that's in this passage because in that incredibly strong language, of Jesus telling us to take extreme measures, there's also a warning there, and he talks about hell. 
In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in Scripture in the New Testament. And there's a warning there that unrepentant sin of any kind is something that God has to judge and that he will condemn. But he offers us a lifeline. He offers us a way out through right relationship with him, through, through Jesus Christ. That's his grace. Do we deserve it? No, no one deserves grace, but he gives it to us anyway. And we all need daily, hourly, moment by moment, God's transformative grace in our lives through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and then living that out by choosing to trust and obey him. My friends, I think some of the best news you'll ever hear in your life is that you don't have to live in your brokenness. You don't have to settle for sinfulness and selfishness. The power of God is what enables you to leave and to move away from being a betrayer and becoming a believer. And I know statistically there are some of you who are watching this who will watch this as a recording in the future where yes, you are right in the middle of an adulterous relationship. You are cheating on your husband or your wife. And there's a number of you who are thinking about it. You're weighing it out. And I want to offer you a real life story of hope. You do not have to do that. You do not have to settle for that. And my plea to you, my appeal to you is to not do that. And this is why the power of God to transform and give hope in the deepest of hurts, in the most profound brokenness and betrayal is real. This is a real story because when I preached this passage last time, so many years ago, so many hundreds of sermons ago, thankfully, this person came forward for help. He was betraying his wife. He was in an adulterous relationship. And the Spirit of God moved in his life where he realized, not only is this wrong, I am miserable. I am hurting myself. I'm hurting my God. I'm hurting my wife. And this has to stop. And so I want to read this story to you as our worship team comes and prepares to um, lead us back into a worship response to what we've heard. But this is from the wife's perspective. And then I'll read you the husband's. The wife says this, It's a miracle of God that I am still married today. What Satan meant for evil, God used to do a work of good in our marriage. The only way I've gotten through the past several years is by standing on the word of God, falling on my face before him in prayer, repenting of my own sin, seeking wise counsel from others who know the Lord well, and refusing to give up. I was confident that God could heal our marriage, but I had no idea how he would accomplish it or if it would actually get healed, but I knew that he could. I came to the point that I had let go of my spouse and had to give him to God. I had a peace that whether or not our marriage survived, I would be okay because I had Jesus. And that motivated me to fight too and to wage war on the front lines of prayer. It takes two to make a marriage and it takes two to put it in the toilet. Both of us had to repent of our part in letting our marriage get to where it was and being willing to change if we wanted to survive. And that continues to this very day. 
It's amazing how fast I can return to old bad habits if I'm not keeping my eyes on Jesus and my actions focused on serving my spouse. And that was from the perspective of the one who was betrayed. And now here's the husband's perspective. I did the one thing I swore I would never do. I followed in my dad's footsteps and I cheated on my wife just like he had cheated on my mom. This cannot be happening. But it did. And please listen carefully to this next part. It started out innocent enough, just a friendship. I wanted to be her friend so I could get to know her husband and become friends with him. Well, that didn't turn out that way. Short conversations turned into longer ones. Then we'd meet for coffee alone and talk more. She made me feel good and made me think that I could accomplish anything. And when she told me she liked me, that put me into a tailspin of confusion confusion and excitement. I didn't know what to do. Eventually, we started an emotional relationship that eventually turned into an affair. I was ready to leave my wife for this other woman. The affair was found out after four or five months and her ending it with choosing her kids and family over me. I started the hard road of rebuilding my marriage. We went through the motions, both of us, in shock from what had happened. I wrestled with God about my marriage and how to regain her trust, love, and respect. We met with good friends who supported us. We went to marriage counseling. We met with church staff who helped us tremendously and put us on the right track. We are still working on our marriage every day. It's an ongoing process, but it used to be something we took for granted. We don't now. We try to communicate more openly with each other and not fall back into old habits that have hurt us in the past. And a verse that brought me hope throughout this whole process with this, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, with however this applies for you, you do not have to be a betrayer. The grace of God, the power of God, the forgiveness of God enables you to have a new beginning, a fresh start. I had the privilege of walking with this couple. They're still friends. Jamie and I both walked with them. We love them. But this is a multi-year journey that you just heard from, and the journey's not easy. But it is totally worth it, and you don't have to do it alone. But it starts with surrendering to this amazing God who loves you and has something better for you than your brokenness. The question really is if you will believe him and then act on it. Oh, I love, I love the reality of what we sing together and what we celebrate together. This is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And this is the God who loves us despite our brokenness, in the face of our brokenness. The grace of God is not a license to sin and to live however we want. It is the escape from sin and brokenness. We don't have to be betrayers because, my friends, when my heart is not guarded, when my passions are not guided, I betray this God that I love. I settle for sinfulness. I settle for brokenness. And that does not have to be my identity or yours. His grace moves us from becoming betrayers to believers. And once again, our appeal to you is that this is a safe place. 
And if you are struggling in any way this morning with anything that we've talked about, would you please get help? We're not going to condemn you. We're going to help. We're going to walk alongside you. And all of us have to do business with this God who will not share us with brokenness and sinfulness because he offers us something better. So will you reach out? There are innumerable ways to get a hold of us. And myself or any one of our team would love to meet with you and to help you grow in this grace that we have just been singing about. Because my friends, it matters how we live our lives because you are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on its stand where it can shine and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. God bless you. God be with you. We will so look forward to seeing you next week online or for the first 50 of you who are SVP at 1045 for our live service. God, go with you and be with you and now go live for him. Thank you for joining us for sermon audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.